welcome back to another episode of Lowest of the Low podcast. You're back with me, Aaron, and Chris, my co-host. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself in a minute, but we're back this week uh, talking a few different issues. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, lockdown easing and a few things that we've seen across social um, that mainly annoyed me, um, but we'll be having a discussion about that. And we're then going to come on to the news um, that obviously Sergio Aguero is leaving Manchester City. So we're going to take a look at the top Premier League strikers of all time. And we're going to have a real disagreement about where Jamie Vardy fits in that list, aren't we, Chris? Well, uh, well I, I wouldn't have thought so. I imagine you're going to say the exact same thing as me. And I'm sure everybody listening is going to agree with me about where we're going to place Jamie Vardy in, in that hierarchy. But uh, yeah, we've got a bit, a bit of a mixed bag uh, this episode. So we're sort of all over the shop. Having we do like to roll the dice. Yeah, well, having upset everyone with the uh, big club chat in the last episode, I thought <laughs> I might return to upset people more people. It, yeah, exactly. Upset as many people <laughs> as possible. So before we start, um, we just wanted to make a couple of acknowledgements. Um, at the time of filming this, we, we did lose um, Prince Philip this week. Um, so obviously condolences go out to Her Majesty the Queen and the rest of the royal family. Um, obviously a very sad time for them. Um, and the country as a whole. And we did also lose Paul Ritter this week, who is a, well, he's a big part of both of our TV watching, I think, Chris. Um, yeah. Friday night dinner was something that we really bonded over. Um, and it's another sad loss of this, another well, another dark year, really. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, very sad, actually. I was really upset when I read uh, about his death. Was it earlier this week? And it was just a big shock. He was only in his 50s. And obviously, it was another case of not uh, not knowing that he he'd been ill for some time. So obviously a big shock. And then obviously, literally, we are recording not long after the news broke about uh, Prince Philip's death. So yeah, it's been a, another another big week. It has. It's been it's been difficult. Um, of course, we'll we'll quickly. Um, move on, not to sort of gloss over of any death or anything like that. Um, but we're going to talk about the lockdown restrictions easing. So we've moved, we did talk about this in our first um, episode and we were talking about the sort of roadmap out of, of lockdown. Um, we're now at stage uh, two, if you like, um, at the time of filming this and we'll soon be moving on um, to stage three, which by the time this comes out, we will be well underway with. So barbers and hairdressers um, and particularly pubs, as Boris mentioned in his press conference, will be opening. He'll be down there. I'm not sure I will be. Um, I don't think I can actually get in around my area, but they've they've made some good effort at the pubs in terms of um, making outside seating viable. So love to hear from them about all the work that's going for that. But Chris, I saw um, something on Twitter, and you'll be aware of this because you are one of my many followers. Um, I am on there. one of your tens of followers, yeah. <laughs> and I did see... At the moment they relaxed the uh, outside guidelines, obviously you could meet uh, six people outside again in a park, um, go for a picnic. It just seemed to me like the um, virus had gone away and people were no longer interested in following the rules or following any sort of guidance. And I sat there and I thought, is this going to have an effect on... There's been obviously a lot of talk around that magic date of the 21st of June. We won't talk about the 22nd because obviously England are playing and that's probably all going to go downhill. Um, but are we going to hit that target is my question. And people, I don't want to say flout in the rules because obviously they're allowed to meet up in sixes. But people sort of being quite blasé about the virus now. Chris, do you think that that's going to jeopardise our, our freedoms in June? Well, I want to start off by saying... I'm really grateful for the fact that we've made the first checkpoint uh, and I will be able to get my hair cut in a few days because I'm absolutely sick of the mop that is currently on my head. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. and I, I can't stay right now. Um, it's weird, actually, this one, because I think people who have been listening to this podcast, I know we're only four episodes in, well, this is the fourth, um, they'll probably be well aware already that I'm the ranty one. And you're a bit more level-headed. Yeah, this is something that's upset you far more than it's upset me, which is... Uh, it has. It's very, it has annoyed me deeply, Chris. I mean, I've been making my plans and not to do any advertising plugs or anything like that, so I won't name the nightclub. But I am very excited, potentially, to go back there. And I 
it annoys me because I feel like I've been following the rules the whole time. Um, obviously, like things, you try and do social distancing as best you can. But I went into Tesco the other day to do the big shop, which is rare for me. I don't usually get days off on a Friday. And I went in, actually, I went in last Thursday. Um, and it was it was rammed. There was no social distancing. People were just climbing over each other. I mean, you should have seen down the Easter aisle. I mean, it's all about bad preparation. Obviously, like Easter being two days, um, two days after that. It was madness, and it was almost like we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, and we weren't, you know, people just seem to have forgotten about it. And, and I have to say, it was a lot of old people doing it, and these are the people who've obviously. I don't want to start past pointing fingers and doing, you know, blaming everyone for for what's going on, but it did seem to be a lot of old people doing it, and they, it seems they've become a bit blasé with it with with having the jabs. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is an element of that. I think as well, you probably see younger people as well have this, I think, I'd say people our age, probably even younger than us, to be honest, uh, have this sort of uh, lack of awareness of mort- their own mortality. So I think it's, particularly with stuff we're going to be talking about, because I know you're you're not happy about the the outdoor gatherings, large outdoor gatherings. I mean, to, to give the context, obviously, unbelievably, uh, about a week, was it 10 days ago, we were basking in, 23 degrees celsius and then this week we've had snow i mean absolutely mad um so yeah obviously people raced outside uh to meet with well hopefully groups of six or fewer and uh, enjoy a few bevs in the sun and obviously uh the problem is when you when you have cities and you have people meeting outside in groups of six in limited green spaces those groups of six quickly amalgamate into massive groups of people and obviously there wasn't much social distancing, but I have to say, and this probably will sound controversial, it's probably going to be our first major disagreement. I was the the thing that upset me the most about the scenes we saw was the litter that people left. That really wound me up. I was far more upset by the fact that all these green spaces were covered in empty uh, cardboard crates and you know empty beer bottles and empty cans of you know M&S gin and tonic or whatever it was than I was about about the social distancing because, you know, obviously we are in a pandemic and obviously, you know, we're not out of the woods by any means yet, but we do know um, that the virus doesn't spread uh, as rapidly outdoors and when when it's exposed to uh, sunlight and exposed to warm weather. Um, And ultimately, I'm not saying is that I endorse people gathering in mass groups before uh, the restrictions are fully lifted. But what I am thinking is people are going to be doing this anyway. I think it's naive to assume that just because of the rural state, you can only meet in a group of six outside at the minute, that people aren't pushing the boundaries and meeting inside or wherever else. And I would much rather have people outside uh, in warm, bright weather than inside and I, I just think they're going to do it I'd rather it was under those situations and I think I mean I, I don't have the, the data to hand um I know I've read um comments on several websites about how the risk of transmission is reduced outside and uh, we only have to look at last year when you saw those images of people rushing to beaches in Bournemouth and areas like that uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't remember a subsequent spike in cases, and this was obviously pre-vaccine. So I'm wondering, is it, is it really that important? I, I want to get your perspective on this, because I'm generally quite nonplussed about the whole situation, whereas I did see a lot of people like you really angry. And actually, I understand the, the anger and the agitation, but I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just wondering what, where you're coming from, really. I think I think my my anger is more towards that a lot of the people who sort of do and I'm not saying that the, the picture that I saw was obviously just a massively packed overcrowded park and it was full of litter as you say which is obviously that was awful um as well but what annoys me is that I find it to be a lot of the people who bend the rules shall we say I won't say break them but bend the rules are the first people to moan when things when things go wrong and I just don't want to get to a point you know we've we've done really well on the vaccines and obviously they had the news this week that they were going to offer different vaccines to younger people which you know 
there's been a lot of scaremongering around that back, those vaccines. I've had the AstraZeneca vaccine. I was I had side effects for a day. I was fine. Um, obviously, it won't be the same for everyone, but you get minor side effects from from a lot of things. Um, you know, I would still say take the vaccine if you get it. But just sort of coming back onto onto the point, it was just. Boris Johnson said when he made the announcement this was going to be the last of the lockdowns that we were, we've just sort of come out of and, and started to unlock from. And I don't want, I think it would be very hard for him obviously to backpedal on that. But I, I see people outside and I see people, you know, I know people who are, you know, flouting the rules and they're doing it publicly. They're posting all over their Instagram stories. They're posting all over Twitter, all those sorts of things. And they don't care. And then when it gets extended and we come to the 21st of June and we're not able to do all the things that we thought we were going to be doing, you know, they're, they're going to be the first ones to complain. And that's really where my gripe came from, to be honest. Um, and I just think that there's been a lot of people that I watched. Um, I watched an episode of Hospital the other day and it was from November 2020. And um but I tell you what, <laughs> it was pretty dark, you know, um, and it was filmed just before we had that real second wave in sort of October time. And it was the NHS saying, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're seriously overwhelmed and we don't know how we're going to cope if there's another spike. And I watched all these people going in for operations um, and people who were ill and they had to do all this isolation. They obviously couldn't see anyone. They couldn't have any sort of visits at all. Um and I just I feel sorry for for people who have done you know extremely clinically vulnerable people who've had to shield this whole time. I know shielding's obviously um, sort of gone out the window now, but I feel sorry for them that they've had to do all this and then been sort of promised this holy grail date of the 21st of June. And I just think that some people are flouting it, and it will end up causing other people problems in it. It, it winds me up that that they just have no consideration of anyone else. I'm not saying it's everyone, and I do agree with you that I think it's better that people are outside, and if they are going to sort of slightly bend the rules or whatever, then then whatever. But it, it annoys me that there's so many people just blatantly flouting it and sort of they're living it up and they're proud they're proud of it, and it's really to be <laughs> to be quite blunt, it's really pissing me off. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I do, I can obviously totally understand that, but <laughs> I, I want to come at what you're saying from a different perspective in that I am I get wound up with a lot of the stuff that goes on, obviously, around COVID. Um, the thing that's really grinding my gears currently is this obsession with selling doom to people and this discussion about the chances of a third wave and, and, and a fourth lockdown. And I just think it's irresponsible because, look, I'm not a, obviously I'm not a chief, I'm not a chief medical officer. I'm Chris Whiting, not Chris Woodsy. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, I do get you confused. I mean, you've got the same haircut, so. <laughs> Honestly, every time I read like articles and I scan read and I see his name, I think, why are they writing about me? Like, what have I said? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I, obviously I, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. You know, you look at the case levels, you look at how vaccines are affecting hospitalisation, uh, severe illness, deaths, transmission even. And I just think, what, where is this justification coming from? It is selling doom. I saw an article in the Leicester Mercury um, about a week ago and the headline said, don't overdo it this Easter or fourth lockdown looms. I clicked on the article about two thirds of the way down the article. It says there is no suggestion that a third wave is coming or a fourth lockdown will be imposed. And it's just this fear-mongering. That is a complete nonsense headline that they've just summoned to scare people. And I think we've been through so much shit as a country, as a, as, as a planet, over the last year or so with this, this pandemic. People don't need to be needlessly scared. Obviously, we do need to be cautious because we are still in a pandemic. It is still a death sentence for a lot of people. But this just incessant obsession with scaring people into not doing anything at all is just driving me insane i mean i i understand your frustration it, it does rankle when people take liberties that others can't or aren't comfortable 
taking themselves and will be the first complaint if those were then stripped back. I, I completely accept that. But then I think of it from the other pers- perspective and I think, you know, people have been through a lot and I'm not talking about, I mean, the mental health toll alone of this pandemic for the entire nation has been catastrophic. And I think we had two days of nice weather and people went a little bit overboard, having not been able to do anything really normal for over a year. And I know it sounds like first world problems were with you, but it matters to people. I have felt, I mean, we're 20 somethings. I feel very cheated that our last year of our lives has been as boring as it's been. I We should be out being idiots. I mean, that is what that's the point of being in your 20s is you go around and you, you you piss about and you you know you make stupid mistakes and you go and do stupid things that's sort of the point and we've not been allowed to have those experiences so i do think now i mean obviously caution's important um i'm not a lockdown skeptic i think you know you if you went back and you know checked any evidence of things i've said throughout this pandemic i've wanted there to be stricter measures i've wanted to take it more seriously but now the vaccines come into play and they've been as successful as they have. I don't buy this fear mongering about a, thir- a, a third wave or a fourth lockdown. If there's going to be a third wave, it's going to be nothing like the last two waves we've seen because the immunity is completely different. Um, and to be honest, I'm, I'm getting bored. I'm getting bored of being terrorised by the media. And I just want them to, to be more truthful, to be honest with you. And I think... In, in part of me thinks good on people I mean obviously don't fl- I don't want people to flout them I don't want people to go off and have massive raves with 40,000 people indoors but you know if you if you're going outside and you, you're seven of you okay like it's not the end of the world you know it's not really gonna make that much of a difference you know what I mean I just I'm I'm losing the the I'm losing the patience now with people who it almost feels like to me want things to go wrong and that's what's winding me up more than the stuff that you're talking about. No, I, I, I agree with what you've just said. Um, but I just want to just clarify that this isn't aimed at, you know, I I think Gary Lineker actually tweeted something. You'll like this, Chris, because obviously he's a Le- you're Leicester man. Um, but it's not obviously aimed at everyone. And I think the majority of people are are following the rules um, and obviously doing things, you know, sensibly. Um like I say, there are there are people that out there that there are always going to be people out there that don't want to completely blank it. I mean, look at the anti-lockdown process and, and stuff like that. But they're moaning that we're in a lockdown, but yet it's anyway. But it's it's another story. But um, yeah, I just wanted to go back to Gary Lineker's tweet because obviously he said the other day that you know young people particularly have had it really hard. I think that you know we are in that category, and I have found it very difficult to to live a weird this is a weird life like it's a very strange situation where you literally can't even go down the road and see your mates and you've not been able to do that for three months and I completely understand that people wanted to get out there it was a bit of nice weather and and I, I get it I do understand it um and I think that there's been a lot of um you've obviously talked about the media sort of hyping things up when perhaps it's not as bad as it might seem um in the news um but again, there's been a lot of finger pointing, particularly at young people who people have said that they've been the people that are breaking, that are breaking the rules. But I think, that, you know, they've been given up a year of their of their lives. So a lot of old people, and I don't want to sound like I'm just, well, I think honest, we obviously had a really poignant thing at the start. Obviously, we were talking about people dying and I don't want to say because they're old, they deserve to die or anything like that. But I think that younger people have sort of spent that year locked up and not living their lives and everything like that. So older people can yeah, have the I mean, opportunity to actually live through this. I just want to like quickly interject there because, you know, this rubbish about young people have, have been, you know, driving infections more and breaking rules more than any of the age groups. The data, I've seen so much data that suggests that younger people, and I mean people under the age of 40, have been far more diligent in self-isolating when they've had symptoms than older people. I mean, we can talk about intergenerational fairness. I'm sure we'll get into that in one episode because I've got a few axes to grind uh, <laughs> there. But one thing that I'm finding really, like like Gary Lineker, as we're saying, like you were saying, is, you know, people our age have given up a, a, a year, well, over a year now of our lives. And if we're being frank, 
probably for no real get personal gain, I probably, people like us probably won't die, probably won't even get really ill from this virus. We're losing more jobs than any other age group. We're losing more money than any other age group. And this is a time of our lives, our prime, most people would say, where we should be out enjoying ourselves. And all we've had in return is condemnation from older age groups, which has been completely undeserved. And I remember a few weeks ago, I was walking down the street uh, with a mask on outside because I live in a town at the minute where my mum lives, uh, but has a, a very old population. So I try and wear a mask when I'm in uh, outdoor areas where there's lots of people anyway. And I stepped into the road for an older man coming uh, the opposite way to me and walked by the curb. So I was on the road, but not obviously in the middle of the road. And he tutted at me as if I hadn't given him enough space. And I thought, what more What more can I possibly do here? And obviously, it's not this man's fault, but I, it, you know, I did feel just a swell of rage. I've given up a year of my life for people like you. I've stood in the middle of the road to allow you to pass. I'm wearing a mask so you feel comfortable. And you took me. And I, I do think there's a, a massive lack of respect for millennials and uh, Generation Z in particular. And the things that we've sacrificed for no personal gain. And also, I just want to point out, I'm very aware of the irony that I said I wouldn't be ranting as much as you, and I have done. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't resist it. I, I knew it. it. I, you've literally fallen hook, line, and sinker. I dangled <laughs> the bait out, and you've literally taken it, and I am loving it. Um, but no, I just, um, I completely agree with everything you've just said there. And I just think, I, I used the term blasé earlier, and I do think a lot of people of, of older generations are a bit blasé with it now. Um and I, it is, like, it does feel like a bit like scapegoating um, of younger people because that's an easy target. That is a really easy target. And like you say, I think you made a really good point about, you know, this is the generation that are losing most jobs, losing the most money. And I think really a year in the context of a life doesn't seem that much. But when you've literally not been able to do anything for a, over a year, it does take a toll and it does start dragging on people. And yeah, I mean, like I say, it wasn't a personal attack on anyone. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of finger pointing at the moment with things. And I don't think it's warranted all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe if people just, well, I just think it's common courtesy because I'll tell you one thing that really winds me up. It's when people like, when I go out for a walk and stuff, or if I'm walking with someone else, I'll walk in as like a single file so that other people can still work, walk on the path, but obviously there's a distance between us. And it really winds me up when I see sort of, it's never people that are our sort of age, it's, it's people that are older. I'm sorry if you are older and listen to this podcast, this is not a personal attack on you because I'm sure you'll work, walk single file, but just move over, just move over. You don't need to walk next to the person, just give people space and they're, they're just completely oblivious to it. And it really, really, I think out of any, everything in this, and obviously the going around Tesco and people just literally just, they have to be right behind you or they have to be right next to you. That is what really, really winds me up. And actually, I just wanted to come on to another thing. And I know this wasn't planned, but I just wanted to mention it. Um, there's been a lot of things um, in the news, obviously, about people talking about if they don't follow the rules, then that's going to jeopardise the... The, un the unlocking dates, Chris. Um, but what about the the vaccine crisis in Europe? How is that going to affect us? And I think we should probably touch on that um, because is that going to affect us long term? I this is the first time I voted for um, to remain in the EU, and I just want to put that out there. Um, obviously, 2016 is a long time ago now, and we're no there's not really a, a, a clear idea of what Brexit looks like I don't think yet um, still but this is the first time particularly on these vaccines that I've been genuinely annoyed with the um, European Union like I understand there was a was a you know a little bit of uncertainty around the, the vaccine as I said I've had it um, I'm fine at the moment <laughs> touch wood um, and I just feel like when they were seizing the vaccines and stuff and sort of blocking exports to the UK, why, if they're not going to use it, why were they doing that? And is that going to jeopardise our plan? And I know that sounds really selfish, but I don't want to make it all like all for one and one for all and everything. But, you know, 
I just think they are there's a different approach for everyone every country don't get me wrong but I don't know how you feel about their approach Chris because it's all just it seems to be dragging on and I don't want it to affect everyone, everyone's lives as much and it just feels like it is I think the important thing I mean basically I, I, I would like to disclaim, make a disclaimer as well I obviously voted to remain um, you know if I had it my way you know we'd revoke, we would have revoked and uh, stayed in uh, even at the last minute of the Brexit negotiations. Either way, um, yeah, I, I've been. I, I shared your sentiment. I, it's the first time I've been annoyed with the EU. I think the way there were sort of threats about um, blocking exports of the vaccine to Britain was something that was done in really bad faith and didn't reflect well on anybody. Uh, I think it's a really spiteful uh, threat to make in a pandemic. To be honest with you, um, I think. As much as I think the UK has got pretty much every aspect of the COVID response wrong, the vaccination uh, has been very good. Uh, we've been vindicated as a nation in uh, trying to get as many first jabs uh, rolled out as possible before we've done the second jabs, whereas many EU countries have done the opposite, which is part of the reason why they've been slower to get people vaccinated, why they're having higher rates of uh, cases and uh, whatever else at the moment um and yeah i think to be honest with you what's annoyed me i think we need to first be aware that when normality does eventually return it's going to return domestically far sooner than it will globally you know i think i read somewhere it's going to be four years before uh, everyone in the world has had access to a vaccine and that's talking about the global south who you know will not have any have had really any access plenty of countries won't have had any vaccination so far by the way and we are and the UK has a big part to play in that because uh, they're one of several countries that is not uh, allowing the relaxation of intellectual property laws, which allow these vaccines to be replicated in other countries and produced elsewhere, which I think is just an astonishingly evil thing to do in a pandemic. Um, but yeah, I think what's frustrating me about European Union's response to the AstraZeneca, and it's not just been the EU as well, Canada as well, um, and European countries outside the EU, their response to the AstraZeneca vaccine has been foolish in the sense that the figures we've seen in terms of the blood clotting risk have been remarkably low still. Obviously, they are, they are, well, they think there is a link, but it's still remarkably low numbers. But what they've done is they've sowed doubt in the efficacy and safety of these vaccines, which are such an important tool in fighting the, the COVID virus. And that has been just such a, an idiotic thing politically to do. I mean, I took the liberty the other day uh, of researching uh, your chances of getting blood clots. And, you know, it's a point percent chance of developing a blood clot from the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's roughly one in every 250,000 people. I mean, these are huge odds. And Focusing on that, you are 125 times more likely to get a blood clot from the contraceptive pill, if you're a woman. 250 times more likely to develop a blood clot from flying. 7,500 times more likely to develop a blood clot during any major surgery. And this is the real kicker, which is why I think the, you know, the, the scaremongering that has come from, from these poor decisions and poor handling of this this crisis and i use that term very loosely is that you are 18,400 times more likely to get a blood clot if you catch covid-19 than you are from getting an astrazeneca vaccination i mean i can't um, i mean like i think you put it in i mean that puts it in context completely but do you think that because they've i know obviously the moderna vaccine is is now sort of being um, I know it was approved for use. Was it approved for use here? I can't remember if it was. Um, but it obviously was a third option for the vaccines. How do you see this initial scaremongering, which I think it was? And I know that they've put out all these stats and we can talk about them till we're blue in the face. But it will affect a lot of people taking the jab and the uptake of, of vaccines in general. How do you think, I mean, particularly across Europe, it's it's... It puts it in an impossible situation, doesn't it? Because that just has a knock-on effect on on us. And I just wanted to ask you whether or not you thought 
the blocking of the export of vaccines and stuff. And I know there was obviously targets in place um, that we were trying to hit and get everyone vaccinated by the end of, I think it was June, they said initially. Do you see this as sort of a, well, we haven't had a very good vaccine programme and now we're just going to try and sabotage yours or is it is it something else? Is it is it is it a knock-on effect, is what I'm asking, of the Brexit um, negotiations and how that went? Yeah, I think it's in part due to some bad blood that's come between Britain and the EU uh, because of Brexit. Um, I think it was a poor, like I said, it was a poor um, time to display sort of uh, animosity towards the UK. I mean, at the end of the day, I can't claim to, to uh, you know, be supportive of the fact that the EU was missing doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But ultimately, these are private contracts between a government and a supplier. And, you know, the EU doing something to block that private contract between the British government and AstraZeneca is would have been a, would have been an awful thing to do. And it, it would not have been that they, they would. Yeah, it just it's just a spiteful and nasty thing to do. And it, you don't. I just, I, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with this sort of uh, frustration that they've not been as successful. I think they're they're probably irritated that their method wasn't uh, as uh, well, yeah, successful as the UK's of trying to get all the first jabs done uh, before the seconds. Um, but yeah, I think I think the big problem now is the way they've gone about this whole thing, and I'm not talking about the you know threatening to blockade uh, supplies. Um, I'm talking obviously about the the fear and the doubts they've sown in the AstraZeneca vaccine and vaccines as a whole. That's going to be a, a big knock-on effect. You look at the confidence levels of, of people in Europe with the AstraZeneca vaccine; they're remarkably low. Uh, they're not so much in the UK. I think because they've been the vast majority of the vaccination so far, and people have seen they people have experienced people they know and love having the vaccine and being absolutely fine, or at worst having some mild side effects and then recovering. A few days later, that sort of doubt hasn't crept in here. Um, in regards to what they're planning to do or what the government's saying they're planning to do in giving remaining uh, under 30 year olds uh, an alternative vaccine, I don't necessarily think uh, that's bad. Um, again, I would happily have the AstraZeneca vaccine if offered it. Um, but if it's going to uh, alleviate fears and even if there is a small chance that the AstraZeneca vaccine can cause blood clots in younger people, and that would reduce that risk even lower than it already is as a minuscule risk. And I think that's a perfectly fine thing to do. I think even in terms of perception, it's a smart thing to do just for people who will be worried by the, the reporting of it. But yeah, I think in terms of how vaccinations are going in Europe compared to us, um, it's going to definitely have an effect. It, there will be an increase in uh, sort of vaccine anxiety, which will slow down take up rates, hopefully not to the point where it will have a massive effect on herd immunity. Um, but I think, like I said earlier in, in the in the uh, segment, I do think we need to be prepared to accept that, yes, we might have a summer, you know, in the pubs, in the pub gardens, having UK city breaks and maybe trekking down to Cornwall. I don't know as if we'll be heading out to the Costa del Sol this summer so I, I would definitely you know put the suitcase away for now. Costa del Sol? They mean Costa del Sol for them. <laughs> it will be this year. <laughs> uh, yeah exactly um, yeah I think a very good uh, good point there to be honest and it's it's a shame that I mean I haven't really focused too much on the rest of the world to be honest with um with vaccines because I know on uh Google Maps, you can now search for vaccine centres in the in the US, and I'm not really sure how they're doing their programme, although their case rates are obviously quite high, and there's a lot more people there that they've got to try and get vaccinated. So obviously that's a slightly different um, challenge in itself. And we've <laughs> we've been ranting um, for quite a while, um, so let's uh, let's let's move on to our next topic. Um, but I'd just like to say, if people are listening to this. And you feel differently to to what we've just discussed, um, then please do let us know because we'd be really interested to hear how other people feel about this and not just sort of us ranting on um, for however long um, and talking about it. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear. And if, if you feel like we're uh, we're being unfair to all the age groups as well, I'd like we'd like to hear from um, from you. And then maybe you feel like we're being too kind to young people. I don't know. We are 
I think we can't help being biased. I'll call it unconscious bias. It's so, yeah. I don't want to start a generational turf war, but I hate boomers, so let's carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um, so <laughs> recently, um, Manchester City announced that Sergio Aguero would be leaving the Etihad at the end of the season. Um, one of the greatest uh, players, Manchester City, if not the greatest player in uh, Manchester City's history. And obviously, remember, well remembered for that iconic Aguero moment that I don't think anyone associated with football doesn't know about now. Um, it's a loss for the Premier League, um, but we're going to look at whether or not Sergio Aguero is the greatest striker of the Premier League era, because there's been a lot of talk. Um, he has, well, I mean, effectively Aguero has been Manchester City's only striker over the past nine years or so. They've had other players like Dzeko, um, Negredo, uh, Balotelli, Jesus now more recently. And none of them have stayed the course and he's been doing it very much on his own. Um, I think, how many goals has he got now? He must have, uh, where is he? 181 Premier League goals. He's behind only Andy Cole, Wayne Rooney and Alan Shearer. Um on goals, obviously, we're talking about Shearer as being the top striker. But, Chris, is Sergio Aguero the greatest Premier League striker of all time? Well, John, that's an interesting one because, obviously, the stats like you just read out, statistically, no, he's not. Um, you know, you look at that, 181 goals, he's still 80 behind Shearer. But then I always think about, he's always injured. <laughs> and I think, had he managed to keep himself fit more often... It's, diff- it's so difficult, isn't it? Because when we when we look at these players, I mean, how successful would Shearer be if he was playing now compared to? I mean, the game's different. Oh, you you've stumped me with that. I, 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 my instinct is to say no, but that's mostly because I've not really thought about it in terms of I've not really sort of come round to a, a decisive opinion. But I w- I would say no. He, I don't think he's the greatest. He's definitely one of the greatest, but. I, I can't say he's the greatest, no. I think with Aguero, like you said, he's, he's been injured quite a lot. But he's the sort of bloke who'll play 25 games a season in the Premier League and score you 30 goals or something like that. Or, you know, every year he seemed to hit 20 goals and he seemed to have hardly have played. I remember the game um, when he scored five against Newcastle and it was just... He does some unbelievable things. I mean, the goal he scored against Liverpool a couple of years back when he was literally on the byline... And managed to put it in. He's a very special player, and I just think Manchester City is obviously an interesting club. They've got a lot of money, um, and things are obviously they're bringing players all the time. Does this open the door for Haaland going to Manchester City? Of course, we could talk about that. I don't know, um, but you know they've lost they lost company a couple of years ago. They lost David Silva last season. They're losing Aguero now. I mean that. That core of experience there. I think Fernandinho's days are probably numbered. He he's not playing that much. I mean, is this the is this the changing of the guard that Manchester City as well? While we're on this, I, well, this I think it ought, it ought to be if it isn't because you know they've been, a lot of this players been kicking around for the best part of a decade now. Um, obviously, it's good to have have you have your spine. I I realise the irony is me as a Leicester fan talking about players kicking around for ten years while we've got Schmeichel and Vardy playing every week. Um, but yeah, I think they are. Um, they are evolving. They are changing as a team. They have got new young, new young players coming through, um, and yeah, I think it's it's time for these players to move on. In, in terms of these marquee signings and like Haaland you're talking about, are Man City going to be? I mean, I know Man City are an extremely wealthy football club. Are they going to be able to do that sort of business in this transfer window with COVID hanging over the hanging over the sport? Was it 125 million pound losses? Over the last financial year, I don't know. I mean, I don't know it's Man City, but who's gonna? It's the same reason I don't think Harry Kane's leaving Spurs this summer. I mean, if you are him, you're gonna you're gonna go and want to win a trophy at some point in your career, and he's not gonna do that in North London. Um, so, but who's gonna be able to afford him at the minute? You know, you see these massive losses the clubs are reporting. I just and you know, I don't I don't see any slow down in terms of inflation for, for players, particularly in the English league. So I, I, I can't I can't see these marquee signings being made. You mentioned Harry Kane there. 
A lot of Spurs fans have said that he should be considered as the greatest striker of the Premier League era, being a sort of... Is he an heir to Shearer? I mean, obviously, Shearer scored quite a few goals for England as well. Harry Kane is now the England captain um, and goes into the Euros in fairly good form, I think, based, well, as long as he can stay fit and, and keep his scoring going. But where does he rate in the uh, the greatest Premier League strikers? I mean, we're looking at the list of, of players here, who've, who the top goal scorers. You've got Alan Shearer at the top, who's a distance clear of everyone now, 260 goals, 52 clear of Wayne Rooney, who's in second. I mean, Wayne Rooney, is he in the conversation? I thought Wayne Rooney was good. I didn't think he was the best um, striker, but, you know, he sort of dropped deeper in his latter years. And I know he obviously played for Everton at the end before going to to America. Um, You've also got Andy Cole, 187. We talked about Aguero, obviously, who's going to be sorely missed, I think, at Manchester City on 181. You then have an outlier in there. You've got Frank Lampard, who's on 177 goals. Um, and then my personal pick, who I think is the best striker to play in the Premier League, Thierry Henry. I don't know how you feel about that, Chris, but I'm putting that one out there. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how I feel about that, Aaron. In I feel that I agree with you. Um, I'm just looking as well because obviously the total number of goals scores only tells sort of half the picture. If you look at goals per game ratio, which I think sort of gives a better um, understanding of, of the quality of the striker, Aguero's got the second best uh, 0.67 goals per game. Joint first is Thierry Henry and Harry Kane. Now, Harry Kane, I think, is an exceptional striker. He wasn't when he was playing for Leicester. God knows why I waited till after he left us to, to actually start being a decent footballer. God will only know. Um, but there's something about Thierry Henry. I don't know if this is just me with my nostalgia-tinted glasses, but I remember as a kid watching him play for Arsenal, and it was... He he's just he was just oozed quality in everything he did. He was just such a presence up front all the time. I... I I mean, Harry Kane's a really good player. I don't know. I can't really quantify what what I mean. In the just Henri always strikes me, struck me even, and I realise the irony of me using that term as just a more quality player. Um, and I can't really tell you why, but I, I've always felt yeah. If I and if I had to pick from the list of the of players we're looking at here, I, I would go with Thierry Henri, which is probably a bit boring for you. I mean, I I nearly fell off my chair when you said you agreed with me. Um, But I just, I think, throwing a few, I mean, perhaps not the greatest strikers in the Premier League ever, but some seriously underrated players on that list. I think, you know, you're looking slightly further down the list. You've obviously got Robbie Fowler after Thierry Henry. And then you have Jermaine Defoe on there, who's a seriously underrated striker. He's obviously been, he kicked around for ages in the Premier League. And I do think it just outlines Harry Kane's, it's really paining me to say this as an Arsenal fan. I do think it outlines Harry Kane's quality that he's got 160 goals. He's two behind Jermaine Defoe now. And he is close. Do you think he'll get the, do you think he'll be the top goal scorer in the Premier League? Do you think he'll finally beat Shearer? Because obviously I know it depends a lot on him hanging around and, well, I suppose accepting that he's not going to win anything and maybe have to have a few Carabao Cup finalist key rings on his mantelpiece. Um, but do you think he'll catch here? I think that's the thing. Um, Kane can't do both, in my opinion. He can't be, he can't take Shearer's crown if he wants to win trophies because he's not going to win them at Spurs. Um, and I think that's why when you go through this list, and I, I don't know if it's unfair or not, when you go through this list and you look at uh, Robbie Fowler, Jermaine Defoe, Harry Kane, Alan Shearer, you know, the reason why they don't jump out to me is as good as striker or as quality, as, as having as much quality as Henri and Aguero is because they played for mid-table teams for a lot of the time. They didn't play for teams that are winning titles. Um, you know, and and I think I, I, I don't know if that's even fair to be honest. And I, obviously, I'm, I do want to make a shout out here, someone we've not mentioned yet, someone who deserves to be mentioned in this conversation. That is Jamie Vardy. I know what you're going to say. I know he's got 119 goals, quite away um, off 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 the the top top uh, of this list. But you have to remember, he was you know 20 
No, he was, yeah, how old was he? 27 when he, he first kicked a ball in the Premier League. I mean, that has to be worthy of some recognition here. And that is some achievement. And bear in mind, I don't want to denigrate my amazing football club, but he was 27 when he first played in the Premier League. And he's played only in the Premier League for Leicester City. Yeah, he's only five behind Steven Gerrard. He scored more goals than Ian Wright, more than Giggs, more than Crouch, Heskey, Drogba. Adebayor, Van Nistelrooy, Berbatov. I mean, I, I think he deserves high praise. I mean, if you're Gareth Southgate and Jamie Vardy is making himself available to the England squad, are you taking him to the Euros? Because I think I would. And I think he offers something a little bit different. I know he's getting on now. Was he 34, 33, 34 now? But he is still a top-class striker. I mean, to be as quick as he is at his age, his finishing is unbelievable. And now he's actually become more of a creator with Ian Acho. I mean, it, you know, we've got to talk about Pele playing up front for Leicester. <laughs> I know we can't put Ian Acho in this discussion, Chris, about him being the greatest well, Premier League striker you know, in the time. Well, you weeks. <laughs> when, when Alex Iwobi wins the Ballon d'Or, then maybe we'll talk about it. But, yeah, I mean, Jamie Vardy is an unbelievable player. Uh, especially when you consider where he um, where he came from, um, and you know he, he didn't just he had that. Do you remember that year? Obviously, of course you remember it when when obviously you won the league. Oh Who no, I don't remember forget? that one, Aaron. Actually, yeah, a few years ago it. now. I don't think but, about um, that every single day of my life. <laughs> I mean, he was he was unbelievable that season, and then he obviously came off the back of that and went to the to what was a very disappointing Euros campaign for for England. But I just remember that goal he scored against. Germany, um, that the ball that came in, he just flicked it back with his, his. It was unbelievable, and I just think he is. Perhaps we're not talking about the the best players in the league anymore, but we're talking about the most underrated, potentially the most underrated player. I do, I do really think, and he, he's got the record as well, most goals scored in consecutive games. I will never forget that game, obviously against Man United, so it gave me great joy. Um, to see him put that one away. But someone that I did want to talk about, and we've not really discussed them, they did come up in the list. Um, Wayne Rooney, where do you stand on him? Well, it's a bit hard because I don't like him. So <laughs> my immediate response is to is to not give him a fair hearing. Um, it's the same with Alan Shearer in the sense that he's not popular at Leicester because he once kicked Neil Lennon in the face uh, during a match and he got away with it. So... I find it difficult to be uh, objective. Rooney's a difficult one. Like you said, he's clearly a very, he was clearly a very talented footballer. You know, he scored some brilliant, brilliant goals. Um, but uh, yeah, he's not as prolific as the others we mentioned. Like his goal to game ratio isn't as good as, you know, your Henri's and your, and your Aguero's. And when I think back on Rooney, I don't, I know he played the lion's share of his career as a striker, but I just think him is more in my head as a, as a, I don't know, he's more like a number 10 than a number nine in my head. And that's, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say he's the great, he's a fantastic forward player, but if I was being a purist, I wouldn't say he's a brilliant striker. Do you think that being a great striker is about individual brilliance and scoring goals? Because obviously that's what strikers in the team to do. Or do you think it's about the trophies you win as a team and the important goals you score? Because obviously you look at someone down, slightly further down the list, like Robin Van Persie, um, who obviously he didn't really win anything at Arsenal. And it pains me um, to say that. And he did obviously, again, this is very painful. This is going to hurt me saying it, but he made the, um, the right decision to go to Man United to win the league. But then you think about where he dragged them up. I'm playing up front alongside Rooney and the goals he scored. Does is that what makes a great forward rather than the than the actual goals? It's the importance of the goals. Do you think? I, mean, I don't know if I buy that. I mean, I think it's it's an aspect of your game. You know, if you if you're a top quality player, you turn up in the big games and on the big occasions. Maybe that's part of the reason why, when you look at the goals to game ratio, I do put Henri ahead of Carry Kane because. Kane can go missing when it counts, as do a lot of Spurs players, as we've seen over the years. They do, they do fall away at the crucial moment, you know. And I remember Thierry Henry and, and the Arsenal sides he played in being relentless. They were winners, um, 
So I don't know, maybe, I, I, I don't know if you could boil it down to just important goals. I mean, there's been plenty of players that have scored important goals who, you know, didn't have a great scoring rate outside of these big moments. So, you know, I, I don't know if you can boil it down to just, um, to just those aspects. But, yeah, I definitely think it's a part of it. Um, it's, I, yeah, I, I think it all comes into sort of, it has to be a player, in my opinion, who, Scores goals, which I do think is the most important thing. I remember back in the Sven and Eriksson days at Leicester, we signed Jakubu on uh, for Leicester, and uh, he he wasn't particularly mobile. Uh, he didn't really do a lot of the uh, the the grafting in the team. And I remember lots of Leicester fans saying, "Oh, all he does is score goals." I was like, "Well, that's <laughs> that's why we have him. That's what he's there to do." You know, I don't really care if he's sort of standing around for 80 minutes. If he scores two goals a game, that's fine with me. Um, so I, I, I do think, yeah, if I'm looking for a great striker, I'm looking for someone with a great goals-to-game ratio, someone who doesn't go missing in the big moments. Um, but yeah, they, 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 I think they're the big criteria. I think you have to have both of those aspects. What about, I know Alan Shearer is the, the leading goal scorer in in the Premier League history, but we were talking about uh, trophies and stuff there. But does does that, I mean, he never won, obviously won the FA Cup, he won the league with Blackburn Rovers, but is it enough for someone like Harry Kane to settle, to break his record, or does he need to, to leave Spurs and win a trophy to be considered a great player or a great striker? Does he need, I mean, he could win the Euros this summer. For, I mean, I really hope that England do win the Euros, but you can see it being a disaster. Um if he wins the Euros, is he, does he need to worry about club titles or can he just stay at Spurs, hope they maybe win a League Cup somewhere along the line and and then break Shearer's record? Or would it mean more for him to, to leave now on 167 goals, go to Real Madrid, win the Champions League like Gareth Bale did? What what would what would mean more, I suppose? I mean, it's, I suppose you'd have to ask Harry Kane personally, but what, would, what do you think Spurs fans would say? If I'm Harry Kane... It's sure it's difficult because if Harry Kane is a, a, a Spurs fan, I would have a tough time if I was a pro footballer leaving Leicester for anyone. <laughs> I think, you know, if they're your club, they're your club. And I think you know, Spurs aren't a bad team, are they? They're, they're, they're thereabouts. It depends if you're talking to Roy Keane or not. But it also, um, I'd just like to point out, Harry Kane with the Arsenal shirt on. Yeah. I can't see uh, you wearing a Nottingham Forest shirt, Chris, just to say. <laughs> Not even a death, Aaron. Um, it just won't happen. <laughs> no, I, I, I think he has to make that decision. I, I personally think it, you add to your credentials if you are in a side that wins things. Um, I think that. And, I mean, you, it's all. I mean, in some ways, yeah, you can be a really good striker scoring lots of goals in a team, but if you're not propelling that team to success, and sort of, what's really the point? You know, are you, you you're, you're a good player, but are you a great player? And I think. Trophies do matter in, in this conversation. And actually, another thing I just wanted to sort of throw in there, I, while you were talking, I took the liberty of checking the, the top assists in Premier League history and seeing if any of the strikers or forwards uh, were high up on that. Ryan Giggs is number one, obviously, so he, we're not considering him. Uh, but you've got Thierry Henry's in 12th on 74 assists. And then you've got Sergio Aguero, Aguero down on 46 assists. So... If you're looking at a more complete striker, you know, Henri is, is is the one there. And of all the ones we've considered, he is the highest up on that list. I mean, I am not going to disagree with you putting Henri at the top. And I completely agree that his, um, I think, was there a season? I think he scored 20-something goals and got 20-something assists as well. And he still holds the record. No, De Bruyne, did he equal it? He equaled it, didn't he, De Bruyne, um, when they both got the most assists in a season. And I think that speaks volumes about, I mean, obviously, Henri, the team he was playing in, sort of, you know, toward not the end of his career at Arsenal, but early on in there, um, was unbelievable. But, you know, I think Aguero has played in a good side for, for most of his career um, at City. I mean, perhaps you probably wouldn't put some of the players they had early on when, when they came through in, in the top um, bracket. But just, I mean, we're coming towards the end here. Obviously, we've been on for a while, but just, um, for Aguero, do you see him bowing out in style and winning the Champions League this year? I mean, obviously, Man City scraped across the line against Dortmund um, 
the other day. Would it be a fitting way for him to go out with them? I know they wanted to do that with David Silva and it didn't really work out, but does he deserve that? I mean, obviously you've got to play each game on its own merits, but can you see it happening? I can't. Well, I, it obviously would be fitting. Um, it's obviously something that they're going to try and do, because obviously I think we all agree the title's sewn up. Um, but there's something about Man City in this competition. Um, it's a bit like... Um, Arsenal in it. They obviously when they were at their best, they never managed to, to get to the to the to the top and, and to win the win the tournament. I know they got to a final, but they never managed to win it. And I think, you know, you look at the teams left. There are some good teams left still. I mean, you know, Man City will be facing either Bayern or PSG in the next round. Personally, I fancy either of them to beat Man City, and I would even go as far as I think Chelsea probably just. But the, the the side of the draw would end up. I, I think Chelsea and have got a better chance of winning the Champions League this season than Man City. Who's your money on then? If you if you're not picking Man City, who are you going with? Because obviously PSG beat Bayern Munich pretty well. I wouldn't say pretty convincingly. Three two. I mean three goals is a lot to score away from home in the in the first leg. Who's your money on, Chris? Give us give, give us an insight. I will say whoever wins that tie between Bayern and PSG. Chris, you, don't get, you don't get to pick either or. I'll go PSG then. They've got the away goals. Um, yeah, I'll go PSG because I, I know they've had similar struggles in Champions League, but they're, they're a good team. They've got to break that hoodoo sooner or later. And yeah, why not? I think PSG. And if not, it'll be Real Madrid because for some reason they can play at 50% all season, still so somehow manage to accidentally win the Champions League. So. Accidentally win the Champions League. I do like that. I mean, Spurs did accidentally get to a Champions League final, so I suppose I can accept that. Um, one final question for you, Chris, and we've touched on this man before, and we're talking about great strikers, so it's a pretty fitting way to wrap up. But if uh, Haaland does go to Manchester City or another Premier League club this summer, and he stays there for 10 years, does he break Shearer's record? I hate these sort of things because how many times have we talked about wonder kids and then like five years later we're like oh yeah remember him he was actually a bit crap in the end um i, I know he's a quality player um does he break shearer's record what is it 200 in is it 260 goals 260 years. in 10 years nah not for me <laughs> not for me and, uh, you're not back in hardy to break it then oh of course well never all got no okay obviously Vardy's not going to break it uh, Ian Acho, on the other hand, you know, say no more. <laughs> I'll tell you who won't break it. Anyone currently in an Arsenal shirt? Well, I don't know. Martin Odegaard, bit of a baller. He's a wonder kid that... Uh, it still seems to be Norwegian. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, I mean, 10 years is obviously a big ask, but maybe if it's longer, I don't know. I just... It just seems like the ideal time. I, mean, I know Man City were obviously linked with uh, with Messi last summer, but it just seems a bit of a no-brainer now to try and get an actual striker in because I don't really see... I thought Jesus was going to be sort of the natural successor to Aguero and I don't think he's... He's a good player, but I don't think he's got the... Uh, the um the in, well he's got the striker's instinct but I don't think he's got the quality to to replace Aguero and I think Man City are definitely going to have to sign someone big in the summer um to a replace him and b I'm going to say it I'm going to go out on a limb and oh I'm going to go out and say it I mean, we're pretty certain they've saying another title but they're going to win the league comfortably it's going to be a pretty big margin and they're going to have to buy someone to to retain it and I think they'll I know we're obviously talking about the pandemic and there's a knock on effect in football but surely the Sheikh and Sheikh Mansour I think is, is the owner yeah um, he'll throw the money at it surely and Haaland just seems like a no brainer to me and I would love to see him in the Premier League replacing Sergio Aguero who is going to go out and win the Champions League as uh, his final game for Man City I think Dreaming. <laughs> I, I still want to see Messi in this league Still want to see Messi in the pro. I know it's not going to happen now. Um, maybe when he's 38 and he comes to play for newly promoted Reading. But, <laughs> you know, I, I would have liked to see Messi in his sort of prime, you know, in the Premier League. I, mean, I know it's a completely different conversation. Maybe we'll have it in the future. But for me, that's 
you know, one of the things I find frustrating when we talk about him versus Ronaldo is we've seen Ronaldo in different leagues doing well. I'm desperate to see Messi, you know, come to the Premier League. I want to see if, if he can bring his sort of dominance here. But I guess he's not up to the challenge. What can we say? <laughs> you know, if, you're, if, you're listi- if you're listening to this, Chris has challenged you. He wants to Look, see you playing the King fancy, Power. He doesn't fancy being dumped on his backside by Daniel Amati, and I can't say I blame him. <laughs> Well, to be honest, I wouldn't want to be done for my backside brain either. But no, it's been a, it's been another uh, fun uh, fun episode to film with you, Chris, and another packed one where we've done a lot of ranting um, and also discussed a lot of Premier League quality as well. So we've given the right mix. I think, Premier League quality and some Spurs players as well. Yeah, we've thrown we've thrown <laughs> Spurs on the top just uh, just to please our viewers. But yeah, let us know what you think. Uh, do you think Aguero is amongst the greatest in the Premier League? I mean, I think we've settled on. On Henri, so let yeah. us know if you agree or whether or not you still think it's uh, one arm Shearer or Wayne Rooney, obviously head coach at Derby now. I don't know if he's going to be able to uh, going to be able to bring them back up to the Premier League and let someone have a go at uh, <laughs> getting to his position. But yeah, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us again, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Take care, bye.